0: URC, which means that we are under their supervision and authority during this time in which we are a church plant. Elder Scott Corheis is again here with us this morning with his wife Ellen and he is a elder of the Linden URC and we a few weeks ago I had the privilege of ordaining and installing two local elders uh, John Witt and Tony Gilbert which was a, a huge step in the life of this church plant and something that we're very thankful for. And those of you who are on our emailing list, you should have um, you should be aware that uh, we are having a fellowship meal after uh, these our two services this morning at the Dottells' home here in Gig Harbor. And so, uh, if you weren't planning on it, but um, would like to join us and are available, we'd love for you to, to join us for a fellowship lunch immediately following our, our services this morning. And if you need their address, just feel free to talk to John or or, um, or Kathy. They live just like five, seven minutes away. So we'd love to have you join us. And then we will have a time of of fellowship um, and refreshments after this service and before we begin our catechism service at about 11.15. And our catechism service, again, is a time for us to reflect upon some of the great truths that have been handed down to us from uh, the historic church. It's a, a bit... Uh, more of an informal time for us to reflect as a family together on some of these things that we confess together as the body of Christ here on earth. And so we'd love for you to stick around for that as well. Well, you should have an order of worship as well as a Psalter hymnal. If you don't have either of these two items, I would encourage you to pick them up on the front table. Uh, These items will guide us in the next hour or so as we seek to worship our God both in spirit and in truth. Well, please stand, if you are able, for our call to worship, which comes from Psalm 115. The psalmist says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Here the psalmist is contrasting our speaking God, the one true God, with the mute idols of the nations. And our God indeed is a God who speaks, who has revealed himself to us through words. And in this moment, he is calling us through that word to worship him, to call upon his name, and particularly to listen to what he has to say to us this morning, both in his law and in his gospel. So, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, from where does your help come? Our help help comes comes from from the Lord who made heaven and and earth. Well, your God blesses you this morning as he welcomes you into his presence, saying, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come, and from the seven spirits before the throne, and from Jesus Christ. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Well, please take your psalter hymnal and turn with me uh, to number 172 as we ask that the Lord would indeed speak to us this morning in this time of worship. So, number 172. seated. Well, this morning God speaks to us in his law from Mark chapter 9 verses 2 through 8. And in this passage, we we receive an account of the transfiguration when Jesus ascends a mountain and we see him in the presence of Elijah and Moses. So, hear now the law of the Lord from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. We learn that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophetic office. Moses and Elijah appear on the scene in Mark chapter 9. And we learn that Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses and Elijah and all of the Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist was the last Old Covenant prophet. And then Jesus. So Jesus is the climax of of the prophets. And God confirms this as as he speaks from this cloud and says, this is my beloved son. This is who Moses spoke about. This is who Elijah foreshadowed. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Who Jesus is in his prophetic office causes him to be someone whom we are to listen to. Jesus demands our ear because of who he is. And we are then called to listen to what he has to say to us, particularly when it comes to his moral revelation, the commands and and the law that he gives us. We are to listen to Jesus, and he commands our respect and our attention. But this listening is not merely the hearing of words. It's, as James says in In James chapter 2, that we are not to be mere hearers, but doers also. True listening involves hearing the words of God's law and then allowing those words to translate into practice, into our daily lives. So I'd like us to examine our hearts and examine ourselves in light of this last week. How well have we done in listening to Christ and His law? And like us to confess our sins using the words of Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a prayer of confession that David used after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And in Psalm 51, David acknowledges that he didn't properly listen to God's law. He knew what God's law called him to do, but he didn't listen. So we too are called to examine our hearts and confess the ways in which we've been negligent in listening to the true prophet of the Lord our God. So please follow along with me in your order of worship as we pray, not only with our lips, but especially with our hearts, saying, Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out our transgressions, wash us thoroughly from our iniquity, and cleanse us from our sin. For we know our transgressions, and our sin is ever before us. Against you, you only, have we sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Behold, we were brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did our mothers conceive us. Purge us with hyssop, and we shall be clean. Wash us, and we shall be whiter than snow." Let us hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from our sins and blot out all our iniquities. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Cast us not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of our salvation and uphold us with a willing spirit. In this moment of silent confession, we bring you our particular sins. Amen. Well, please rise as we hear God speak to us another word, a word of the gospel. Our declaration of parting comes from Romans chapter 10, where the Apostle Paul says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have indeed listened to this gospel and in response have professed faith in Jesus and repented of your sins, you can be assured as I declare to you in the name of Jesus Christ and in the authority of the word of God that your sins have been forgiven, and that you no longer are under God's condemnation and wrath. Amen. Let's respond in gratitude as we sing forth the doxology, which is printed for you in your order of worship. Son and Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, please remain standing and turn in your order of worship to the confession of faith element. This morning we'll be confessing our Christian faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed. For those of you who've been in our catechism service last few weeks you know that we have been considering phrase by phrase what we mean when we confess this very ancient creed so christian in whom do you believe i believe in god the father almighty maker of heaven and earth i believe in jesus christ his only begotten son our lord who is conceived by the holy spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified dead and buried. He descended into hell.
1: The third day he
0: rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection, resurrection of the body, and the, body and the life everlasting. everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. We now have the opportunity to come before our God the Father, who is indeed the creator and sustainer of all that exists. And we come before him in the name of the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing before him all of our prayers, the requests of our heart, the petitions that we, um, that, are, that are bothering us. And as always, we will conclude by reciting together the Lord's Prayer, which is printed for you in your order of worship. So let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we come before you in this moment and, and we are reminded of the words of the psalmist who, who proclaims, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And the psalmist goes on to say that he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And we know as we have just recently examined ourselves that we do not have clean hands. We do not have pure hearts. Rather, we are very much unclean and very much impure. And so we, in this moment, have no right to approach you in your throne of grace. We have no right to boldly come before you with the requests of our hearts. And so we ask that you would hear us in this moment, not for our sake, but for the sake of our mediator and intercessor at your right hand, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Hear us, we pray. Oh Lord, we pray for your church, which is scattered across this globe. We give thanks for how... We see the outworking of your son's promise who said that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We pray that you would continue to make good on on this promise. We pray specifically for the mission works within our own federation, the URCNA. Uh, We give thanks for how we see this this seed of the kingdom continuing to progress uh, within the conf- confines of our, our small federation. We pray that you continue to do this work. We pray specifically this morning for Reverend Andre Ferrari as he labors uh, as a pastor in Italy. Uh, we give thanks for the work that is going on in that country and the Reformed presence that's beginning to, to bud and flower. We pray that you continue to bless their efforts. And we particularly pray this morning... For your blessing upon the efforts that are being made to form an Italian communion of churches. We pray that a true spiritual bond would be created among these ministers and elders. We pray that your word would continue to break down the stronghold of of Satan and darkness that exists in that land. Lord, we pray for our own local church. We pray for the Linden URC. We give thanks for the blessing of being under their oversight. We give thanks for Elder Court uh, We give thanks for the number of, of elders and members who've been, who've, who visit us th- this past month. Uh, we pray that you continue to give wisdom to their consistory and counsel as they seek to uh, shepherd the flock of God that is among them. We thank, we give thanks for uh, Elder uh, John and Tony as they've recently been nominated, installed, and ordained to this new office. We pray that you continue to to bless them in in this new role. We give thanks for providing uh, under shepherds in our own midst. We pray that you continue to bless your words that go goes forth each week from uh, from this from this place. We pray that it would accomplish your purpose of convincing and converting sinners to drawing people to Christ and to renewing them after his image Lord we pray for our civil magistrates and we pray that they would promote a society that is pleasing to you we ask that we would be a people who are diligent uh, to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may live a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in, in every way We also pray that you, through your Spirit, would cause our hope and trust to be in you as the creator and sustainer of all things, as the true author of history, and that we would not place our hope in the uncertainty of world leaders. Oh, Lord, we also. Uh, lift before you the needs of your people gathered here in Gig Harbor. We continue to pray for the physical concerns of your people. We pray for uh, Noelle and Mary Delzeal. We pray for Lauren and her back and her mother as she recently had eye surgery this past Friday. We just pray for your comfort. We pray for your healing. We pray for perseverance and that you would remind us of that glorious day that is awaiting us at the other side of this veil of tears when uh, you will make all things new. We pray for those who are suffering from various psychological or emotional distress. We pray that your peace, which transcends all understanding, would guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, we pray for our sanctification. We pray that you continue to help us to be a people who are a listening people, People who don't merely hear the words of Scripture, but do the words of Scripture, O Lord, in gratitude to this gracious salvation that we've received uh, through the blood of Christ. As we soon turn to hear you speak to to us in the proclamation of your word, we ask that you would grant us ears to hear, eyes to see what you would have for us this morning. We pray all these things in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's taught us to pray, saying, Our Lord, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn in them to Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. If you were with us last week, you will recall that we considered how the apostles had a vision problem. They were wearing the spectacles of their own sinful reason, assumptions, and expectations, and Jesus was calling them to put on the spectacles of the cross. Today, we continue to see this theme of poor vision being played out in the life of this blind beggar, one who is physically blind. So Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. Please pay careful attention, for this is the holy and inspired word of our Lord. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, "'Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me!' And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, "'Son of David, have mercy on me!' And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, "'What do you want me to do for you?' And he said, "'Lord, let me recover my sight.' And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, everyone knows that things are not as they should be. We get sick. We endure physical pain, weakness, and and hardship. People die. Far too many people die prematurely. Things are not as they should be. And this is true not just in a physical sense, but also in a spiritual sense. Spiritually speaking, we are not healthy either. We look within our hearts and we see that our hearts are filled with greed and and bitterness which boils over into joylessness, discontentment, a lack of satisfaction, conflict and strife everywhere we turn. Things are not as they should be, no matter what one's religious views are, I think this is Everyone has this sense. Every human being living in this present world has a sense, a gnawing sense that things are not as they should be. Apart from God's revelation of himself, both in the law and the gospel, there is really no framework to properly diagnose this human predicament that we all find ourselves in. And... There is no proper framework to offer a definitive hope and solution, remedy, to this human predicament. Now, if you take the the dominant worldview in our culture today, which is uh, atheistic naturalism, there is no framework to diagnose the things that we all intuitively feel. Because these hardships are just merely natural phenomena, the outworkings of, of the evolutionary process. And there is no definitive hope that can be offered. Just, we are called to then just create our own meaning out of the life that we've been given. In fact, there's one 19th century philosopher who himself was an atheist and a very consistent atheist at that. And he recognized that with the death of God, which occurred in the beginning of the Enlightenment, this results in, or should result in, a radical reworking of our worldview, our value system, our moral system. And he indicted many people in the West for not living according to their belief. If you believe God is dead, then you shouldn't be relying upon the capital of Christianity. You need to rework your value system. You need to rework your morality. And he recognized that if all there is is this natural world, and the categories of good and bad are Merely arbitrary, subjective, culturally and temperamentally conditioned categories. There can be as many definitions as there are definers. In fact, he once wrote in a letter to his friend in 1883 after a volcano erupted in, in, on the island of Java. which just killed hundreds of thousands of people. And he said, you know, 200,000 people utterly wiped out. How marvelous. Again, if God is dead, who is to say this isn't a wonderful thing? But here in this passage, we come across the last healing narrative in Luke's gospel. The last healing narrative in Luke's gospel. And in all of Jesus' healing narratives, there's much more going on than what appears to be there on the surface. These healing narratives are pregnant with meaning. It's not just Jesus temporarily helping someone in the first century. That's what appears to be on the surface, but there's much more going on than than that. In fact, in this passage, I believe Luke is diagnosing for us the human predicament. The human predicament that we all intuitively know exists physically and spiritually. But Luke also is prescribing a sure remedy in the healing power of Jesus' word. So this passage affirms for us what we all know to be true. We are in a predicament. Things are not as they should be, but it also offers us a definitive hope in light of that predicament. I'd like to argue that this blind beggar that we come across in this passage is a microcosm for this human predicament that we all live under. A microcosm refers to Something that stands as a miniature version of something that's much broader, much bigger. The blind beggar is a microcosm of the human predicament that we all endure in this age. And Jesus' healing of this blind beggar, which on the surface seems to be very local and specific, also is a microcosm of his greater mission to remedy this human predicament. So those are the two things I'd like us to consider this morning. So first, this blind beggar is given to us as a microcosm of our human predicament. It represents, illustrates this much larger problem that we all have. Now we are told in this passage that Jesus is nearing the city of Jericho. As you may recall, back in chapter 9, we were told that Jesus and his disciples have transitioned from the region of Galilee to start uh, their journey to Jerusalem, to do what Jesus came to this earth to do, to die, to suffer, to die, to rise again. And Jericho is only 15 miles from Jerusalem, which means that we are approaching the very climax of this book. And as Jesus and this great crowd that is surrounding him, as they are nearing city limits, they come across this blind beggar on the side of the road. And we are told that This beggar is indeed blind, which likely meant that he was not able to work and earn a livable wage. He was largely dependent upon the charity of others just for his daily sustenance. He was a beggar. And due to this very hard existence that he endured, his life probably would have been cut short. So this blind beggar represents, it's a, micro, is a microcosm of this human predicament that we all endure both physically and spiritually in this age. So This blind beggar first represents life under the common curse, our physical life under the common curse. Now if you remember, uh, recall, or, or remember the, back to the very beginning of your Bibles, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, We encounter a God who works, and he works through the instrumentation of his word. There's repetition in Genesis 1 of God speaking, and God said, and it was so. It's a structuring device in Genesis 1. But we also see that this God who works also judges his work. So at the end of each day of creation, we come across this phrase which says, and God saw that it was good. So God worked, and then God looked upon his creation. God saw his creation and rendered a judgment. It was good. After he was done working and judging, he entered into a seventh-day Sabbath rest. Now, this language of God looking upon his creation and rendering a judgment is, is quite interesting. It's almost as if... The presentation we have of God here is as a God who is, is scrutinizing, evaluating, looking upon his creation as, as a craftsman would scrutinize and evaluate a, a project that he or she just finished. He then renders this just and objective judgment. Now, of course, we know that. God doesn't literally work as we work. He doesn't literally have eyes to see as we have eyes to see. God doesn't rest as we rest. This is anthropomorphic language. And the reason why God speaks in this way is so that we as finite creatures would know something of who he is and what it means for us to be made in the image of God. Because we are made in the image of the God of Genesis 1 and 2. Which means we are made to work as God worked. We are made to make judgments, just judgments, as God made just just judgments. And so, one of the reasons why I believe God gave us physical eyes was so that we could mirror God in making these judge judgments. So that we could exercise dominion over this creation. So that we could evaluate, scrutinize, and render objective, just judgments over all the work of our hands. And so in Genesis 3, when God curses the man and the woman, and says that now this work is going to be laborious and toilsome, what this means is that now people are literally going to have eye problems. Blindness didn't exist before the curse. This blind man likely didn't work. Couldn't earn a livable wage. Part of that curse is that our physical eyes are affected. We can't make the the judgments that we were called to make as image bearers of God. But I I would imagine no one here is physically blind. Some of us might have poor eyes, might need glasses, contacts. But we all probably can think of physical weaknesses that we have pain, hardships that we endure that make our work in this world toilsome. And so, this blind beggar represents all of our lives under the common curse. We all experience the hardship of the weakness of our bodies as we seek to work as God calls us to work as his image bearers. This blind beggar also represents the spiritual predicament. So it's not just the the physical predicament that is represented in this blind beggar. But this blind beggar also represents our spiritual predicament. Many times in scripture, scripture refers to our spiritual situation in the language of physical ailments and sickness. So, for instance, Jeremiah 17 9, we read that the heart is desperately sick beyond all measure. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says that he compares our spiritual predicament to physical blindness. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul is describing our spiritual predicament as spiritual blindness. We are blind to the light of the glory of the gospel of God because of our sin, because we are in league with the evil one ever since Adam broke covenant with his God. We reflected a little bit on this, this point last week when we considered the disciples' poor vision. Uh, they, they were looking at things all wrong. They were unable to see the true identity and mission of Jesus. They had a vision problem. Well, this man's economic conditions also is illustrative of our spiritual predicament. So for instance, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul, in in these chapters, are calling Christians to be generous with their resources. And the ground that he gives for our generosity is the generosity that we've received in Christ. The reason we are to be motivated to be generous with our resources is because of the immense generosity that you and I have received in Christ, And so in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you too might become rich. What Paul is saying here is that Christ, Christ was rich. He's the eternal son of God. He didn't, his existence didn't begin when he came to this earth. The second person of the Trinity. He was rich. But yet he became poor. He took upon himself a human nature. He lived life under the common curse. He took upon himself our sin as he hung on that tree. He took upon himself our poverty so that we might become rich, so that he might be able to robe us in his life of good works, so that he might grant us the right to his eternal kingdom. Paul here is saying that we, in our own sinful state, we're impoverished. We are beggars. We are like like Lazarus, who is laying out before the gates of the rich man. This is who we are. We're naked. We're exposed. We have no home. We're orphans. We're beggars. It's what Luther said. Reported that on his deathbed, he said, We are beggars. This is true. And so, in this blind beggar, we have a picture both of our physical life under the common curse, but also our spiritual life, our spiritual predicament because we are in Adam. We are spiritually blind, apart from the spirit's illumination. We are spiritual beggars, according to our own merits. This blind beggar is a microcosm of the human predicament, physically and spiritually. Notice this blind beggar's response. I I have to imagine he recognizes something of of who he is, of this human predicament. And, And notice that he doesn't do what the rich young ruler did a few passages ago. The rich young ruler who was crushed by God's law realized he couldn't earn God's kingdom by his own merits. What does he do? He walks away sorrowfully. But this blind beggar recognizes that he doesn't have anything to bring to the table. But rather than turning away from Christ, he cries out to Christ. And we see in this blind beggar's confession, his recognition that Jesus is both the son of David, so he recognizes Jesus' identity and Jesus' mission. So twice we see in this passage this blind beggar calling out to Jesus as the son of David. This is the first public declaration in Luke's gospel that Jesus is the son of David. And notice who it's coming from, the mouth of a blind beggar. Not someone we would expect to make this connection. The son of David. This is that Davidic son that was promised to God's people. Centuries ago. Who would have an everlasting kingdom. Who would perfectly obey God's law as all of God, Israel's kings were called to do. This is the son of David. David. This blind beggar recognizes something of Jesus' identity. But he also recognizes something of Jesus' mission. Because he says, son of David, have mercy on me. Twice he calls out for mercy. He realizes that Jesus' mission is not to set up a a theocratic state to deliver God's people from the tyranny of, of the Romans. What this blind beggar cares about is receiving mercy from God. This is exactly what Isaiah the prophet said when he was prophesying about the Messiah in Isaiah 61. Isaiah said that this Messiah, the servant of the Lord who is to come, he would be the one who would show mercy to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to captives, and to those who are blind. And then in Luke chapter 4, as Jesus is beginning his public ministry, He quotes Isaiah 61 and says, I am the one. I'm here to fulfill this prophecy. So, this blind beggar recognizes something of Jesus' identity and his mission. So, let me ask you do you see yourself in this blind beggar? Do you experience, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, your outer self wasting away? the weakness of our minds and our bodies and and this life under the common curse? Do you see yourself apart from the spirit's illumination as utterly blind to the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ? Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3 that apart from regeneration, from being born again, one cannot see the kingdom of God. Do you see yourself apart from the merits of Christ as being a beggar? Nothing to boast in. Lastly, do do you see your need for Jesus and cry out for him as the son of David, the one who loves to show mercy to beggars, who loves to show mercy to the blind? Let's consider now for a few moments... Jesus' healing of, of this man. I believe that Jesus' healing of this blind beggar again serves as a microcosm of his greater mission. Jesus didn't come to this earth just to temporarily alleviate the hardships and suffering of a, a few individuals in the first century. This blind beggar would die in another 10, 15, 20 years. So it's a temporary solution. Thus, this is illustrative of Jesus' greater mission to deal with the human predicament. And So notice what Jesus does in response to this cry of this blind beggar. He stops and he commands this crowd. And the crowd very much has a negative uh, connotation, both in this passage and the passage to come after this. He stops and he commands the crowd to bring over this blind beggar. And he asks this this beggar what what he wants from him. And of course, we already know what this blind beggar is going to say. Lord, help me recover my sight. And Jesus then responds. He says, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And Luke adds, and immediately he recovered his sight. So this is the sixth healing in Luke's gospel which includes this word immediately. The sixth healing in Luke's gospel, where after Jesus heals an individual, Luke adds this word immediately. And of those six healings, five of them, Jesus uses the instrument of his word. It's interesting to think about the, the how behind Jesus' healings. He, he could have healed these individuals any way he wanted. He could have snapped his fingers. He could have just thought a thought, and these individuals could be healed. But most of the time, he uses his word to accomplish his healings. Thus, we see the, the power and immediacy of Jesus' word to bring about healing transformation in the, in the lives of, of people. And these healings are are speech acts, which which means by the very utterance of of these words, reality is affected. When Jesus says, recover your sight, his blindness dissipates. So sort of like a a minister in, in a wedding service when he makes the pronouncement, reality is affected. A marriage is born by the very utterance of speech. This is what we see happening here with Jesus and his words. And Jesus also includes this phrase. Which also is a very common phrase. In his healing narratives. He says to this blind beggar. Your faith has made you well. Now in the original language. This phrase. Has made you well. Is just one word. And it's the verb for for, for, for salvation. To save. So. So. One could render it. Your faith has saved you. This then leads to the question, well, what does Jesus mean? Is Jesus saying that your faith has healed your physical blindness? Or is he saying that your faith has brought you spiritual salvation? Which one is it? Is Jesus referring to this man's physical predicament or spiritual predicament? Of course, the, the the physical predicament is being addressed here because this man does regain his sight. But I also think that Jesus is saying that his spiritual predicament is also being addressed. Why? Well, I think Jesus is intentionally uh, connecting this idea of salvation with his faith. And... Just moments ago, we considered how this blind beggar, beggar in a very extraordinary way, recognized Jesus' identity and mission. You already see the Spirit changing his heart, the eyes of his heart, to see who Jesus is. And so I think Jesus, when he says, Your faith has made you well, he's saying that Jesus has healed this man's spiritual and physical predicament his physical blindness and his spiritual blindness. His Physical, economic conditions. No doubt this man may be able to now get a job and and make a livable wage. And his spiritual impoverishment. He has a right to the kingdom of God. So Jesus, through his word, has the authority to reverse the curse. Meaning he has the authority through his word to reverse that common curse that we all live under. And this physical healing points forward to that definitive healing that He will bring about in the resurrection of the body on the last day. But Jesus also has the authority through His Word to forgive sins, to accomplish spiritual transformation. And so in this age, we see that Jesus continues to use His Word to accomplish spiritual transformation in His people. But then in the age to come, Jesus will use His Word to bring about physical transformation. In the resurrection of the body. So I'd like to briefly, briefly consider those two aspects of how Jesus continues to work through his word. As I mentioned, this age, our bodies don't taste of redemption yet. It's our souls that taste of redemption. And Jesus continues to use his word to bring about this healing, transformative work in Our souls and spiritual lives and so we read in in numerous uh, occasions uh, for instance in Hebrews chapter 4 that the word of God is living and active it's living and active Isaiah 55 uh, the prophet says that God's word is effective just as the rain comes down to this earth and accomplishes its purposes of bringing life to this uh, creation so too God's word accomplishes his purpose accomplishes his purpose. The word of God is living, it's active, it's it's effectual. Now in scripture, the word of God came to the people of old in many different ways. Visions, dreams, direct revelations, and written scrolls and and, and scriptures. But for us today, in the post-apostolic era, the only means by which we partake of the word of God is through the inscripturated word of God. God's not promised to give us direct revelations apart from scripture. What we have for the word of God is the inscripturated word of God. And we have to have confidence that Jesus continues to work through this word to bring about spiritual transformation among his people. The work of regeneration and transformation no less um, as miraculous as him healing the eyes of this blind man. 2,000 years ago. Jesus continues to work through his word to bring about spiritual transformation. Now, that's probably not controversial for uh, most conservative Christians that there's power in, in, in the word of God. But I'd like to press a little bit into how we receive the word of God. That's not spoken of quite as often. Yes, the word of God is important. But how do we receive the word of God? Scripture tells us that's also a very important question to ask. I think for many people, especially in our day and age, in America, the way we would answer that question is the most important way in which we partake of the word of God is as we do so personally and privately. But throughout Scripture, we see it's actually the opposite. The main way in which God blesses his people through his word is publicly and communally. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear. Luther says that the, the ear is the organ of the Christian. And then Paul, as he is writing to Timothy, who really represents the post-apostolic church, he says, make sure that you devote yourself to the preaching of the word. In-season, out-season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? Because it's through them public preaching and reading of God's word that God primarily blesses his people. And we don't have to pit the public against the private, but we also have to realize the emphasis of Scripture. The main way in which God blesses his people is through the preaching of his word. And especially in our day and age when we, we take in so, informa- so much information <laughs> I think many Christians today have the privilege of, of, of taking in lots of spiritual content. But one of, the, one of the, the drawbacks to the day and age in which we live is we're not very good at internalizing what we do here. We love taking in information, but we don't do very well in internalizing, truly listening to the things that we do here and digest them spiritually. So Jesus continues to work Powerfully, through his word as it's preached in the context of, of his local church. But we also are looking forward to that day when Jesus will, through his word, bring about physical restoration in the resurrection of the body. So listen to what we read in Revelation 21, verse 5. And he who is seated on the throne, Jesus himself, says, Behold, I am making all things new. The ultimate speech act. When Jesus will come again, and through the mere utterance of a word, bring in the new heavens and the new earth, and all our physical weaknesses and ailments and struggles that we endure in this life will be not temporarily alleviated, but definitively and finally healed and restored. So, congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in this passage, we have a diagnosis of the human predicament. This blind beggar is a microcosm of the the predicament that we all face, physically and spiritually. But we also are given a sure remedy in the healing power of Jesus' word. And this word transforms us spiritually in this age, but we are looking forward to, in hope to the appearing of the Son of God who will truly make all things new. So let us pray. Our Father who is in the heaven, we give thanks for uh, speaking to us through your scriptures. And we give thanks for your Son, Jesus Christ, who continues to work in us and, and through us uh, by his spirit and word. And we pray that, uh, that he would continue to sanctify us and conform us to the image of his likeness. And, and O Lord, we look forward to that, that day that lies ahead of us, when Christ will return in all power and glory and will make all things new. May you remind us of this glorious inheritance that is ours by virtue of Christ and his work on our behalf. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Well, we have the the great privilege of not only hearing the word of God and particularly the gospel spoken and proclaimed to us, but we also have the privilege of seeing the word of God made visible in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And if you are visiting with us, we, we would welcome you to join us at this table as we commune with the risen Christ himself. And we would welcome you if you are a a member of of the Christian church. We recognize that this table is the Lord's table. It's not our table. But because it's the Lord's table, it's a table for the Lord's people. And so we ask that you be a member of, of the Christian church, which assumes that you are trusting in Jesus Christ for your forgiveness and that you've professed that faith in the context of a local church, that you've been baptized in the name of the triune God, and you also seek to live a godly life in the fellowship of a christian church and so if that does describe you we welcome you to join us as we partake of both the body and blood of our lord jesus christ so then to all of us to all of us who have confessed our sins who have professed our faith in jesus christ we can know that the promise of jesus is sure he says in John chapter 6 whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true drink or my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink for the Lord Jesus Christ on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and after giving thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. While remaining bread and wine, these sacred elements nevertheless become so united to the reality that they signify that we do not doubt, but joyfully believe that we receive nothing less than the crucified body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. For those of us who have indeed discerned the body, we recognize that this meal is a special meal. This isn't an ordinary Sunday lunch. It's a special meal. And for those of us who discerned that we are members of, of Christ's body here on earth, you're invited to the sacred meal. Not because you are worthy in yourself, but because you have been clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. Do not allow the weakness of your faith, nor the failures of your Christian life, to keep you from this table. For it is given to us because of our weakness and because of our failures in order to feed us with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So as the word has promised us God's favor, so also our Heavenly Father has added this unchangeable promise. So come believing sinner, the table is ready. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who by the blood of your only begotten Son has secured for us a new and living way into the holy of holies, cleanse our minds and hearts by your word and spirit, that we, your redeemed people, drawing close to you through this holy sacrament, may enjoy fellowship with the Holy Trinity through the body and blood of Christ our Savior. We know that our ascended Savior does not live in temples made by hands, but is in heaven where he continues to intercede on our behalf. Through this sacrament, by your own word and spirit, may these common elements now be set apart from ordinary use and consecrated by you, so that just as truly as we eat and drink these elements by which our bodily life is sustained, so truly we receive into our souls for our spiritual life, the true body and true blood of Christ. We receive these gifts by faith, which is the hand and mouth of our souls. Amen. Let's now go to the heavenly, our heavenly table and receive the gift of God for our souls. By the promise of God, this bread and wine are for us, the body and blood of Christ. We'll lift up your hearts.
1: We lift them up to the
2: Lord.
0: Well, at this time, I would invite uh, John and and Scott, Elder John and Scott, forward to administer the elements. And if you all could make one line in the middle, beginning with the front rows and descending backwards, and then as you go back to your seats, use the outside aisle. Well, the bread which we break is a communion of the body of Christ. Take, eat, remember, and believe that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was broken for the complete remission of all your sins. the cup of blessing which we bless is the communion of the blood of Christ take, drink, remember and believe that the blood of Christ was shed for the complete forgiveness of all your sins well let's give thanks to our Lord for feeding us at his table, let us pray Gracious Father, we thank you for the blessing of this holy feast. Although we are unworthy to share this meal with you, it is by your invitation and dressed in Christ's righteousness that we have come boldly into the holy of holies. Instead of wrath, we have received your pardon. In the place of fear, we have been given hope. Our high priest and mediator of the new covenant has reconciled us to you and even now intercedes for us at your right hand. Please strengthen us by these gifts, so that relying only on your promise to save sinners who call on Jesus' name, we may, by your Spirit, honor you with our souls and bodies for the honor and glory of your holy name. Amen. Let's respond to both the word and the sacrament this morning by lifting up our voices and singing number 19A. 19A, and we'll be Singing particularly stands as five through nine. seated. This time we'll continue to worship our God through the giving of an offering and praying that the Lord would use these gifts for the advancement of his kingdom. Please stand as we continue to respond in thanksgiving as we sing the Gloria Patri, which is also printed for you in your order of worship. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight. Amen. Well, please enjoy a time of refreshments and fellowship, and then we'll gather once again at about eleven fifteen uh, for our catechism service. Thank you.
1: Question
2: about the
1: blind guy. I was thinking about that. I read it before the service. He
2: uh,
1: had to know a lot more than
2: he, he confess Jesus is the
1: Son of David. Where did he hear this? There's providence in place. That Jesus didn't come to save him. He was already saved. Everybody into the synagogue yeah. to hear these things. Yeah. And the, the stories that you had to hear about uh, what Jesus was doing, you recognized way before
2: Jesus got I think about the,
1: uh, the leper as well, right? That had to be a you know, And uh, think about that for a second. Everybody watching had to go this was an impossible you just made yourself unclean. Very, very interesting <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. Okay. I think that it had nothing to do with
2: physical sight. a nice gesture.
1: <laughs> The it. has got bad very little power. How are
2: you doing? Okay, it's been a lot of time on tour, the talk. well
1: we lonely did I show you the pictures of the trampoline?
2: I don't think so. Show me the bed. I <laughs> I'm <laughs> I yeah. yeah. wow. wow. like stand in Oh, wow. first or something. You know? Yeah, like we're not quite together. So, so I'm yeah. yeah. really yeah. 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 it's it's yeah. going to be it's yeah. to be yeah. going to be uh, that, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So since it didn't fit, I, I can go pay somebody $300 and I'm
1: fix it. I have to tow it to them or I can just fix it myself. So that's what um, and I have a welder, I just ran out of gas, so about three welds left. You need the inner, I don't know if you know much about a blast. I'm not good at it, but I'm, I'm better celebration. I like doing
2: the work myself.
1: You spend most of the so you spend time during the next during the week or the most Saturdays I have some I working on after so like work with Saturdays, Saturdays today. Yeah. And I won't work on it today. Yeah. Uh, I get tomorrow for day off so I can work on a Thank you for yeah. continuing to pray for Mary and Julie. That tenacious, yeah. not letting go until I get a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. It just kind of safe. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. It's probably gotten a little worse. I don't know, maybe better. We
2: went for a drive this morning. A yeah. Perfect yeah. Perfect yeah. It's uh, a yeah. yeah. so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is a great It's a great i don't
1: blame you got a lifetime <laughs> of
0: Oh, today? Yeah. Oh, okay.
2: Today. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, am for you and yeah.
1: So I, know, you, I, I know I know they are not on and I've not been doing I, I
0: think right. like, 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 that um, like, like, uh, to like, do we'll pray for endurance all right take care your
2: I oh, you too. I know. So yeah. Like, that like, and 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 are, are go, you, yeah. always oh, yeah. walking. No. with They were always. They were like, they were they were all fit. we are like, they're my uh, all but so we'll see. She's like, right. <laughs> trying so, so, all, yeah. so sure all the right. different, like, no, like, different. Like, things. different Right. Yeah, the Right. Yeah. we a she starts, like, teaching yeah. actually yeah. to, that, and, and, yeah, like, in, yeah so, that's yeah, The other one of so There we go. i like I our kind of with don't have and then like so we got. the so I so I turned. the the library like like. Yeah, 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 yeah. And actually, I would I would do they do they it. No, the no, two was, <laughs> i So you So have you OK. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so you. So, supposed to so,
2: so did you guys Okay. <laughs> we oh, yeah. <laughs> I think of I think but no! Yeah. 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 So. So. I'm normal that we tried to I the salmon uh, so. yeah. yeah. it's like it's like it's like it's like it's like it's like it's I agree. that. not need to be like was <laughs> like um i it I said to you that I'm going to tell you that I'm going to 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 to that I'm
1: Yeah. you Oh, yeah. they am going to share. the question. the the
2: i <laughs> you i you Just so the tension into that one when Max chose them, it was aOff Bundler. That it kind of was around i out when he was standing and Yeah, one yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had the flowers and the community, and I'm just right i i i you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. right? Yeah. right you go back by yourself I you do <laughs> <laughs> <the list. laughs> and you can figure out <laughs> right. so, is pretty much a little bit of a little bit
1: I was about nine years I was <laughs> like, I was <laughs> like, I was I I like, 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 I I I was <laughs> like, I was <laughs> like, I I I are you talking about
2: vamos jogar né 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 I'm going to say, I'm going to say, to say, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, I'm going to I'm going to say, I'm I'm going to say, I'm going to say, I'm going
0: to say, I'm going did yeah. yeah. you guys get yeah. married be for
2: yeah. Yeah. you for your next you are. older? older. Yeah. Yeah. Did you like to how long
0: could please find your seat. We will begin uh, in a few short moments and hang on to your order of worship as well as your shelter hymnal. We will continue to make use of those items as we worship our God once again. Any prayer requests that you might have as we begin our service? Um, my
2: parents are traveling in-
1: Their their first interaction with it, so naturally they're they're not taking it the greatest. Yeah. But uh, my parents are both uh, having pretty uh, major stuff.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. still holding up here. Mom feels like it's that cold.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Very good. in good hands.
0: Okay. Uh, Yeah, thank you. Ashley? No, it has it. Okay. So well, it's a little bit harder to Yeah.
2: eye surgery was successful as far as they can tell until the healing goes down and all that stuff. So but, but thank you for praying. She says thank you too.
0: Yeah. Well please stand if you're able for our call to worship which comes from First Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He that is Christ was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, and believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Here the Apostle Paul cites or quotes a creed that was used in the early church. Great indeed we confess. It's a mystery of godliness. And thus, the task of every Christian is to confess his or her faith, which is why we are gathering again in this service, to grow up into the great truths that we confess together as Christians who belong to the Holy Catholic Church. Well, please uh, turn in your Psalter hymnal to 146 as we seek to praise our God with our lips once again. 146, Praise the Lord, my soul. Be seated. We will soon turn again to hear God speak to us, and as He speaks to us, we are called to listen. But before we do so, let us ask that the Lord would bless the reading and, and teaching and preaching of His Word as we pray together that prayer which is printed for you in your order of worship. So please follow along with me as we pray, not only with our lips, but especially with our hearts, saying, Blessed Lord who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear, read, learn, and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you can either turn in your Bibles to Joshua 5 or follow along in your order of worship. I printed our scripture reading in our order of worship uh, this morning. So Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Here we have this narrative about this encounter, somewhat strange encounter, between Joshua and this figure who is referred to as the commander of the army of the Lord. So Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? He said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Well, that ends the reading of God's word. May he again write his word upon our hearts this morning. We'll be reading from our Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 11, which consists of question and answers 29 through 30. So question and answers 29 through 30. I will read the questions if you please respond by reciting the answers. So question 29 asks, Why is the Son Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? Because He saves us from our sins and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Question 30 asks, Do those who look for their salvation and security in saints and themselves or elsewhere really believe in the only Savior Jesus? No. No. Although they boast of being His, by their actions they deny the only Savior Jesus. Either Jesus is not a perfect Savior Or those who in true faith accept this Savior, have in him all they need for their salvation. As you know, our catechism has three main main sections in it. Guilt, grace, gratitude, or sin, salvation, service. And we are currently in the salvation, grace section of our catechism. And more specifically, we are in the section about faith. So a few weeks ago, we considered the nature of true faith, which consists of what three elements? Knowledge,
2: ascent, and trust.
0: There we go. Getting quicker every week. Cat. Cat. Uh, knowledge, assent, and trust. And the content of this faith is what, according to the catechism? The
2: Apostles'
0: Creed. The Apostles' Creed. Creed. And so now, for about 15 Lord's Days, The catechism is walking through every phrase of the Apostles' Creed and giving a reformed interpretation of this creed as the content of faith. The content of those things that we need to know, those things that we need to assent to, and those things that we need to personally trust in. So, last two weeks we looked at what we mean when we confess that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. So the the doctrines of creation and providence. And now we are moving to the second person of the Trinity. What do we mean when we confess, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, our Lord? Our catechism now walks through every one of those phrases. And so we begin with Jesus, the name Jesus. Why did God give his son the name Jesus? Theoretically, he could have given him any name. What's the significance, the meaning of the name Jesus? That's the topic, the question that is before us uh, this morning. Well, Matthew chapter 1, the angel comes to Joseph in a dream and tells Joseph that his wife Mary will conceive and give birth to a son and commands them to name this son Jesus. Why? Why? for he will save their people from their sins. So here we learn that Joseph and Mary were not the ones who named Jesus. God the Father named his son. The angel revealed to Joseph in a dream that this son would be named Jesus and defines for us the name Jesus. For he will save their people from their sins. And the Hebrew name for Jesus also refers to Yahweh and Yahweh's salvation. Yahweh saves. Well, Jesus saves us from our sins. That's what the angel says. But what does he save us to or for? If we put it negatively, Jesus saves us from our sin. But positively, what does he save us to or for? Eternal life. Eternal life. The new creation, the kingdom of God. We're saved from sin, but we're positively also saved to or for the kingdom, the new creation. God's seventh-day Sabbath rest. Well, the name Joshua, some of you may know, is just the, the Hebrew form of Jesus, or Jesus is the Greek form for Joshua. These are the same names and thus have the same meaning. Joshua refers to um means Yahweh saves. Jesus means also refers to salvation. So there is a connection between Jesus and Joshua, which is the reason why we're going to be considering for a few moments here uh, this relationship. There's a semantic relationship in their names, Jesus and Joshua. It's the same name. It refers to God's salvation of his people. Now before we dive into this relationship between Jesus and Joshua, I'd like to just... I'll briefly reflect upon why, why do we go to the Old Testament to, to establish doctrine? The New Testament is the reality. It's the time of fulfillment. So why don't we just preach and teach entirely from the New Testament? Why do we go back to the Old Testament? It's less clear. It's the, the time of shadows. Why do, we, why do we use the Old Testament? Well, one of the ways we can think of the Old Testament is really a book of sermon illustrations that are illustrating the propositional truth that we come across in the New Testament. It adds color to a lot of the the propositions, the truths that the epistles give us that are revealed to us in the Gospels. And it adds to our understanding of the truth of God's Word. So for instance, think of how a sermon illustration works. If I say, you know, imagine a... A seed that you plant and it, you know, it sprouts and it grows into a sapling and then after many many years, it's a mighty oak. And I say, and thus is the Christian life. It's slow. It's ordinary, but there's constant growth when we put ourselves under the means of grace. I could just say the Christian life involves slow and ordinary growth, but when you point to something earthy, something physical, something that we experience in ordinary existence, it adds color to that proposition. So in many ways, the New Testament gives us propositional truth, but the Old Testament really fills, in, uh, fill, fills this in for us, adds some living color to uh, the truth that we find in the New Testament. And so the life of Joshua does this for us. The life of Joshua is obviously a historical reality. Joshua is a historical person. These are historical events. But they add to what we learn in Matthew one twenty one. The name Jesus means that he's Savior of our people. This is filled in for us in the life of Joshua. And so I'd like us to consider this relationship between Joshua and Jesus. So the book of Joshua begins in Joshua chapter 1 with Joshua succeeding Moses. So Moses, of course, was the people, the leader of God's people, the great prophet among God's people, brought them out of Egypt. And then Joshua was his successor. And so in Joshua chapter 1, we read... Uh, God says this to Joshua. He says, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. And then he continues on and he says, be strong and create courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So notice what Joshua's task is, what his divine task is. His task is to bring God's people into the land of Canaan. The land which was promised to Abraham, their forefather. But God also says that he is to cause the people to inherit that land. they, they They aren't just supposed to enter the land and live among the other peoples. They are to inherit the land, fully inherit the land, which means they are to drive out the Canaanites the other peoples who were living in that land. And that's what we see, most of the book of Joshua is this conquest that Joshua leads. He wipes out all of these peoples and these cities and throughout uh, this book, God commands Joshua to devote these cities and peoples to complete destruction. Sometimes referred to as um, harem warfare. Harem is the Hebrew word for destruction that's used in a number of times in the book of Joshua. So Joshua and the people of Israel are called to devote these cities, these other peoples, these Canaanites, to complete destruction. He is to cause them to inherit the land. And then before, before this happens, before the conquest happens, uh, right after Joshua takes command, and uh, in, in Joshua chapter 3, Joshua leads the people of Israel across the Jordan River. Jordan River uh, was um, the border of the land of Canaan and so he had to lead the Ark of the Covenant, lead the people of Israel across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And when we, read, well, when we read Genesis 3, we learn that God splits the Jordan River and the Ark of the Covenant passes through on dry ground, similar to the Red Sea crossing. And then in Joshua chapter 5, Before they they take the city of Jericho, in Joshua chapter 5, we come across this somewhat strange narrative between Joshua and this figure who is referred to as the commander of the Lord's army. And this commander of the Lord's army has a drawn sword in his hand. And what do we see Joshua do in response to meeting this figure? He worships. He worships. He falls down on his face. And so, who do you who do you think this person is? Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> Some of us might be thinking before Jesus, an angel. But notice that Joshua falls down and worships him, and this figure, this commander of the Lord's army seems to act as if this is the appropriate response. In Revelation 22, verse 9, John falls down and worships the angel who gives him this revelation. The angel rebukes him and says, what are you doing? I'm not an object of worship. I'm a fellow servant like you. Thus, this seems to rule out the possibility of this being an angel. And so many commentators think that this is a Christophany, which means a revelation of the pre-incarnate Christ. So, we not only have a connection in terms of between Jesus and Joshua in in that they have the same name. You might say, well, okay, that could just be a coincidence. But here in Joshua 5, we have another explicit connection between Jesus and Joshua. Joshua, who was, in a very real sense, the commander of the Lord's army. He was given the duty to lead the people into the promised land, to lead a conquest of the land of Canaan. And here, the commander of the Lord's army meets the ultimate commander of the Lord's army, the divine warrior. And Joshua takes orders from Jesus. He falls down on his feet and worships him. He says, what does my Lord say to his servant? Joshua recognizes that he's a servant at the foot of this divine warrior. And what does the divine warrior say in response? Why? You me
2: because you're standing on holy
0: ground. Holy ground. I think what this commander of the Lord's army is saying is not just that this, you know, the 20-yard circumference around where they're standing is holy, but this land of Canaan is holy. This is the holy land. The holy land that was promised to Abraham of old, which shows us that the land of Canaan was a, a, a shadow, a picture of the new creation, of God's seventh-day Sabbath rest, of, of heaven. And this is what Hebrews 4 tells us. Hebrews 4, the author of Hebrews is making this connection between God's seventh-day Sabbath rest, which Adam didn't earn in the beginning, and then the, the promised land, which is an earthly picture of God's seventh-day Sabbath rest, and then Jesus, who comes and earns for us As the second Adam, God's seventh-day Sabbath rest. So you have this connection that flows right through Scripture. God's seventh-day Sabbath rest, the the reality, the earthly representation, and then Jesus coming to fulfill the reality for his people. And so in Hebrews chapter 4, we read, For if Joshua had given them rest, meaning had caused the people to inherit the land. Oftentimes, God refers to the people of Israel coming into the promised land as as them inheriting their rest. So if God had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So Joshua didn't give the people of Israel ultimate rest. The land of Canaan was a picture of the reality, the new creation, God's seventh-day Sabbath rest. Hebrews 11 tells us the same thing. When Abraham was given the original promise that he would inherit a land, this land, we read that Abraham recognized that this promise pointed him forward to a city that had foundations whose builder and maker is God. Abraham recognized that what he was looking forward to was not not just an earthly land in Palestine, but a heavenly land in the New Jerusalem. So this holy land points us forward to the new heavens and a new earth. Well, the book of Joshua, as I've already mentioned, is really a book of conquest. Joshua is leading the people of Israel, causing them to inherit the land. It's kind of shocking on on first reading that that God is commanding his people to utterly wipe out, to, to devote to complete destruction these cities, these people groups. Again, we have to realize why is God telling them to do this? Well, God is commanding Joshua to cleanse this holy land from all that which is unholy. These Canaanites are unholy. Israel is holy in that God called them, redeemed them, set them apart as his treasured people, and these Canaanites were unholy. And only that which is holy can reside in the holy land. And so... He's calling Joshua to cleanse the land. Outside the land, they are called to have peaceful relations with their neighbors. Abraham enters into treaties and covenants with Abimelech and and, and other rulers. Solomon, he deals kindly with, with rulers outside the land, the Queen of Sheba, the Hiram, King of Tyre. But for those people groups inside the land, they are to devote them to utter and complete destruction. And the reason God tells them to do this is because this is meant to be a type, a shadow of Jesus when he comes in his second coming and issues in the new heavens and the new earth. When Jesus comes and issues in the new heavens and the new earth, he will cleanse this earth from all that which is unholy and bring about a true holy land. Jesus will lead a conquest. <laughs> This is the great judgment that we are uh, reminded about so often throughout the New Testament. He will cleanse this present creation with fire and drive out everything that is unholy. Our catechism later on when it talks about the second coming of Christ, it says, What comfort is it to you that Christ shall come to judge the living and the dead? It says that on that last day, Christ shall take all his and my enemies and cast them into everlasting destruction which is foreshadowed here for us as Joshua is cleansing the land of Canaan from all the Canaanites. And the catechism then goes on to say, and Christ shall take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. This is foreshadowed for us as Joshua causes the people of Israel to inherit the land, the holy land. And so Joshua in his conquest is a picture of Jesus as he issues in the new heavens and new earth at the end of history. Again, it was meant meant to teach the people a very important reality of what the greater Joshua will one day do. As already mentioned in Matthew 1 and both our catechism, it talks about how the name of Jesus refers to how how he saves us from our sins. We also have to ask the question, well, what are we saved to or for? Which we already... um, Mention that it's, uh, we're saved to or for the, the, the new creation, God's seventh day rest, the kingdom of God. Well, again, think about, this, how, think about how this is foreshadowed for us in the Old Testament. Israel was saved from Egypt, and Egypt is a picture of sin, bondage and slavery to sin. But what are they saved to or for? The promised land. They're saved from Egypt and to the promised land, just as we are saved from our sins and misery to the new creation for God's seventh-day Sabbath rest. Thus, we have great imagery in the life of Joshua for what Jesus will do for his people. And so when Jesus does come on the scene, we see him portrayed in many ways as the divine warrior, as the commander of the Lord's army. So for instance, Jesus is baptized in what river? The Jordan River which I believe is foreshadowing the baptism that he will endure on the cross. He says um, in Luke 10 that, to his disciples how he's agonizing about the baptism that he will one day have to be baptized with. It's the cross, the crucifixion. Jesus on the cross took the plunge into the, the waters of God's wrath. Why? So that you will be delivered through judgment on the last day. Jesus was baptized in the waters of God's wrath so that you might pass through the waters of the Jordan on dry ground and and enter the new creation. And then we see throughout the Gospels, Jesus' interactions and fights with the evil one and his demons So for instance, right away in his public ministry, he's driven out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And Jesus repeatedly responds to the devil's temptations with the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. This is very similar to what God tells to Joshua. In Joshua 1, um, as he succeeds as the leader of, of Israel, God says to Joshua, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and have good success. Joshua is called to live by the word which proceeds from the mouth of the Father, and Jesus does that perfectly. And we see that played out in his temptation with the, with the evil one in the wilderness. We also see in Luke 4, Jesus rebuking an impure demon. <laughs> and that language of rebuke is is very important because that same word is used in the Old Testament to refer to how Yahweh, the divine warrior, rebukes the nations of this world and reduces them to chaff in the wind. It's it's used as Yahweh, the divine warrior, uh, rebukes the the chaotic sea, picture of judgment. It's used in the Old Testament as, as Yahweh, the divine warrior, rebukes Satan in Zechariah 3. So when Jesus comes and he rebukes this impure demon, if we're acquainted with the Old Testament, we have to think to ourselves the divine warriors on the scene. And then we also read in Luke 10 that Jesus says that he saw Satan fall from the heavens like lightning. He's here to crush the head of the serpent as the divine warrior. And so, Jesus, as the greater Joshua leads us into the new creation on dry ground. We pass through judgment because he took the waters of God's wrath on our behalf, as our substitute. He is the one who rescued us from the grips of the evil one. He's the one who rescued us from our deadly enemies of of the sin and even our own flesh. So now, as those who are in Christ, the devil, the law, our own sin, has no power to condemn us. And so even now the New Testament says we have a foot in the new creation. It's not been consummated yet, but repeatedly we, we hear how we belong to the age to come. Even now, there's an already not yet reality to this. We are inheritors of that new creation, and we're waiting for that full consummation in which Christ will cause us to fully inherit this hope of the life to come. And so there's wonderful imagery when we uh, compare Jesus to Joshua. They not only are saviors of God's people, but they also, uh, uh, from their sin, but they also bring God's people to his promised land. And then question answer 30 uh, tells us how important it is That Jesus alone is the one who brings us to the age to come, to the new creation. It's not Jesus plus anything else. It's completely through the work of Christ. He is the one who bears the penalty for our sins. He is the one who earns, by his own perfect obedience, the kingdom of God, the new creation, and imputes that to us. If Jesus is but a half Savior, he's no Savior. Our faith is exclusively in Christ, the greater Joshua, to bring us into that age to come. And so let us, um, with wonder and worship and praise, give thanks for that, that Christ is indeed named Jesus, the true and only Savior of God's people. So let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we praise you for your scriptures and, and just the, the revelation that we can have of you and your work of redemption and salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, through it. Uh, we pray that you continue to firm and uh, firm up and strengthen our faith in Jesus, who is the one who brings us to your seventh-day Sabbath rest. We pray that we would not just know this, that we wouldn't just assent to it, but that we would personally trust in it. That we'd look away from ourselves and look wholly to Jesus as our greater Joshua. We also lift before you the needs of your people. We, we pray for Brits' uh, parents as, as they uh, struggle with, with COVID. We just pray that your mercy to be upon them. We pray that they quickly be able to recuperate and get back to full health and And travel back to to texas we we pray for noelle's treatment this tuesday we just ask for your mercy upon her as well we pray that uh, it would go well and 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 we just pray that you continue to heal her we give thanks for uh, that lauren's mom's surgery went well this past friday we pray that you give her a speedy recovery as well we lift before you the many other concerns and needs of your people that have been left unnamed we commit them to your fatherly providence, knowing that you are both our almighty God and faithful Father, and as such, you are willing and able to grant us all good. We pray all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Let's respond once more as we sing together number two twenty six. so Deep the Unbounded Riches.
1: Searchable His judgments, how marvelous His way!
0: Receive now God's blessing May the God of hope fill you With all joy and peace in believing So that by the power of the Holy Spirit You too may abound in hope Amen Yes, Yes, that is helpful, yes uh, this is this is a, right, for my, uh, I you know, this
1: is a question, question. Uh, uh, what, yeah. is, what is, what is, is
2: essential?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. so, I thought, you know, I think uh, this is related uh, to the word consent, and it is in a way. Because legally, the whole of don't have consent. Why?
2: So I think the <laughs> the part of your
1: Oh.
2: I
0: mean, a great nuance, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah, yeah,
0: yeah of a versus constant. I mean, if you look at the... Well, dictionary
1: you or to Yeah,
0: right. It's not contractual it's relationship between two equal parties.
1: And it
0: we only yeah. right.
1: you right.
0: No, that's a great nuance. Yes. No, thank you for sharing that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, so it, I think uh, it's a, it's probably, like, the, the
0: ascent and consent. I haven't like, looked into the etymology of it, yet. it yeah, but I don't believe that it has probably stood test of Yeah. Well, that also shows me. like, I mean, the catechism doesn't use the, the actual word ascent, but, like, when you look at how you know, the literature surrounding like, the catechism, and like, really just Grand like, Lutheran traditions. Yeah. It's understood in that way. Yeah. And that's the terminology. And and it goes to show that like the the language that the church uses to express doctrine is very precise. Yeah. yeah. And usually when we depart from that, that's like People and people don't do it necessarily intentionally, but it's just like oh, assent, consent, kind of same thing, right? And then over time, leads, they don't even, see, they don't see that. the implications of that. Yeah. But then you start to have a more contractual view of things. And As so I, I think, that just goes to show them how precise our forefathers were precise in their language for a reason. Oh yeah. And. And I think so many people, like, you know, GK, I think it, trust you know, has been talked about the difference between conservative and liberal, liberal, I think so, yeah. I think so, you With effects, like a or he talked about effects, like a conservative and a liberal kind of offense. And the liberal right. says, I have no reason why I'm just going to tear it down. And the conservative says, I'm not tearing it down until I know why it was construction the first place. I think people do that a lot theologically. Yeah. Yeah. They say, oh, you're I can't just, You know, I don't know why this language is you. I don't see any need for it, let's just tear it down. Rather than, no, I first need to understand why it was developed in the first place, and then I can evaluate it. And so I see that you can play that theologically. Among even people who claim to be more conservative, conservative. Yeah. but they have liberal impulses in their view of history. Um, yeah. Well, so. there would
2: be, be this notion, to say, hey, um, some of these principles, for uh, for example, uh, yeah. say, hey,
1: we're not a lot talking about potential that government grow. We see no evidence that this government can do therefore we don't need this now. Well. Yeah. So it's the idea that, oh, we don't need this. Yeah. reason. <laughs> There's no
0: apparent uh, so it's a period right, right, yeah, it's a thing. She's right, I always I always is really
2: Yeah. Well, I did.